Welcome to the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. My name is Reiner Groh, Research Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and on this podcast I have conversations with aerospace pioneers about new technologies at the cutting edge of aerospace design and research. Special thanks go to my supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you enjoy the Aerospace Engineering Podcast and would like to support it, then head over to patreon.com forward slash aerospace. There are multiple levels of support, but pledging even a dollar an episode is highly appreciated. Thanks for your support. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Dr. Sanjeev Singh is a research professor at the Robotics Institute of Carnegie Mellon University and the CEO of Near Earth Autonomy. Sanjeev has more than 30 years of research experience in the field of autonomous vehicles and has spun out multiple companies from his university research. His current venture, Near Earth Autonomy, develops technology that allows aircraft to autonomously take off fly and land safely, with or without GPS. Near Earth's goal is to develop complete autonomous solutions that improve efficiency, performance and safety for aircraft ranging from small drones up to full-size helicopters. The team at Near Earth was awarded the 2018 Howard Hughes Award which recognizes outstanding improvements in fundamental helicopter technology and was also a 2017 finalist for the Collier Trophy one of the most important aviation awards in the world. In this episode of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, Sanjeev and I talk about his background as a researcher in the field of robotics and autonomy, the fundamental concepts of autonomy, the hardware and software that make it work, the successful helicopter technology demonstrator Near-Earth Autonomy has developed, and the future of autonomous vehicles. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did, but now without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Sanjeev Singh. Dr. Sanjeev Singh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So before we start talking about near-Earth autonomy, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? So what is your background in engineering and how has your career path looked like to where you are today? So I have a background in computer science. That was my undergraduate degree. I ended up um, working in electrical engineering and then specializing in robotics, uh, starting with my master's degree. I was a research engineer working at Carnegie Mellon uh, right after my master's and found myself exposed to sort of the cutting edge, the very start of the self-driving car world, if you would, really the time when robots started to go outside the built environment. And the emergence of a field we now called field robotics. And this is really about robotics in the unstructured environment, uh, where the scale is much larger than um, you would have indoors or in a factory-like setting, where the uh, conditions can't be controlled. So this has become a specialty of its own. It now has uh, various people around the world working on it. And of course, there's applications in uh, a great number of areas such as space, military, um, you know, agriculture, mining, 
uh, and of course now in transportation, autonomous transportation. And um, over time have been exposed to a large number of applications of um, you know people coming and asking for robotics to be used in all kinds of uh, applications. Um, and from the self-driving car world where I saw an opportunity was to use the same kind of technology we use for cars and trucks and tractors um, to be able to use that technology in the aerial uh, world, so in, in the, in, uh, with aircraft. Now, where this becomes particularly relevant is in low-flying aircraft. Okay, when you have a fixed-wing aircraft that can take off from one runway and land at another runway and flies at very large, um, at very high altitude, then the problem is relatively simple because it becomes a question of sort of like that could be uh, stated in terms of, you know, commonly understood terms of tracking or regulation, uh, control, those kinds of things. But if if the aircraft is required to fly from any place to any other place, and it has to fly at very low altitudes where it might encounter objects like wires, trees, and buildings uh, that were not on its map, then it has to be aware of its environment and then be able to understand um, how to be able to man maneuver such that it can fly around these things. So that um, there were lots of common technologies or common ways of thinking from the world that I'd come for. And uh, with the emergence of electric aircraft, especially starting with very small aircraft, so sub-meter scale, and now <clears throat> what we see is this is going to full scale. What's happened is there's a lot of interest in doing what's called eVTOL, electric vertical takeoff and landing. And this has really actually become um, a mainstay of the work we do uh, now is to um, look at a new generation of aircraft and the kinds of applications that would enable bringing some technology that we've been working on for decades. Right, that's that's super interesting. So you know, maybe maybe a super simple question to be, to begin with. So you know, you've been active in the field of autonomous vehicles and robotics. Um, you know, based on on my background reading for you know about thirty years. So you know, what does it actually mean for a vehicle, uh, an engineered system, to be autonomous? What 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 does it have to do to be a truly autonomous vehicle? We think about at least three things, and we can add one more to it. So we think about a cycle that repeats sometimes on a sub-second level and sometimes at a minute level or even 10-minute level, which is we say sense, plan, act. Okay, So the vehicle must be able to sense the world, understand its environment, then use that information to be able to plan its actions and then act on it. Okay, uh, which is to control the vehicle. So this is a very common kind of a uh, cycle that we talked about, talked about in robotics of all kinds of robotics, ground vehicles, um, you know, any kind of robot, robot that we think of as as being intelligent, we think of there being the sense plan act cycle. Then we also add this fourth thing, which we call interact, which is at there's some level of interaction either by human who's uh, commanding the the machine or another vehicle of a different kind or a similar kind that is interacting with it. So this cycle of sense, plan, act, interact is what really actually, I think, makes vehicles 
um, autonomous. Now, you know, we you can do some sort of simple testing and say, is a copy machine that makes copies of documents, is that a uh, autonomous vehicle? You know, it obviously does some sensing. Well, does it do any planning? Maybe not, right? It's got some pre-programmed kind of thing. It can't deal with novel um, situations that it hasn't been encountered for. And then control, yeah, it's it's there. And of course, certainly, it has some interaction. You can sort of punch in buttons on its screen and get it to make you double-sided copies or color ones or whatever. So I, I think, you know, uh, we can get into this definitional problem, but I think generally you want to think about these, the Sense Plan Act interact cycle as something that makes the machine intelligent or autonomous. Okay, great. So given those kind of like four fundamental factors that you just uh, spoke about, um, are they basically then kind of application invariant? Or if you, let's say, think back to the research you did on um, ground-based vehicles, so cars or, or, or robots, are there some differences when you then apply those methods to uh, vehicles that, that fly? Is it basically just boiling everything down to the same robotics or are there, or are there key differences between the two applications? No, actually, from every application, there is a there is a difference. When you have um, ground vehicles operating amongst other vehicles, people, they have to be able to classify objects that are in the scene to understand, first, are they static? Are they moving? Um, is that a big dumpster that is not going to move? Or is that just another truck? You know, A person can look at that in an instant we know what that thing is, but machines have a very hard time trying to figure that out. What is that object? Why do you want to know what that object is? Well, a dumpster is not going to move, but a, a vehicle might move, right? So you have to be able to classify these kinds of objects. And then uh, we have to be able to predict where they're going to go. So classification and prediction become very important um, in this. So we have this, what we call Sense Plan Act, is a very high-level way of thinking about it, okay? But Sensing in practical cases is very different. Um, planning is very different based on the on the application. So let alone from ground vehicles to air vehicles, um, I think we are it behooves us to build these systems such that we take care. Very, uh, we don't we, we're not trying to build human replacements, right? We're trying to build very effective machines, and so we should be very careful to think about what the requirements are, and to build um, technology that suits that. And there are some general concepts that uh, will follow, but I don't think that there's any magical silver bullet that sort of like then applies from one domain to the other uh, without being changed. Right. Okay. And then, of course, to be able to kind of sense, plan, interact, um, a vehicle, of course, has to have some kind of underlying software and, of course, hardware to be able to sense what's going on ar around it. So could you perhaps um, describe, you know, some of the basics of what apparatus, uh, apparatus is, be is, is required for autonomous driving and flying? And what are some of the underlying methods that kind of make it all happen? If you think about the sensing part, there's a few methods that really actually work. Uh, the most common one is easy to understand. There's some sort of cameras. Um, and what we do is uh, we have 
cameras on the ground vehicle or an aircraft, and what they're doing is that they're imaging the environment, much like taking a video. And then there's computing that's analyzing this video in real time, trying to understand it. And there's, of course, depending on the on the application, you might be looking for objects of a particular kind, or you might be th looking for things that are moving relative to the camera and understanding, is that another vehicle? Is that a human? Is that a bicyclist? Is that a dog? We may be able to classify things. We might even be looking for other aircraft in the vicinity, just like a pilot would. Um, looking out for other aircraft. So we, we take video and we process that um, in real time to be able to understand the scene so that the vehicle might be aware of it. Now, what you get from the uh, from this kind of imagery when you do this client classification is that you get a two-dimensional representation. You don't get scale, right? That's easy to understand if you think about the fact that when you take a picture, uh, it could be a big thing far away, or it could be a small thing much, that's much closer. So you don't have an understanding from a single static image as to what it is, or sorry, uh, how large that object is or where it is in the world. You might get a bearing to it, might get what we call azimuth and elevation angles, which tells us the direction in which that object is. But what you don't get is you don't get... Um, you don't get uh, the, the exact location. Um, there's some complementary technology that works, and one of them is something we call LIDAR. And what LIDAR is, is uh, a way of measuring distance to parts of the scene by having very short chirps of uh, collimated light, such that you can make this, uh, you can create a very coherent beam Maybe the beam might only be um, a few centimeters across at 100 meters. Um, and you could do this several hundred thousand times a second. Now, this is remarkable technology. It's been growing very, very rapidly. Uh, the ability to take more measurements, do it more accurately, and then do it in very small devices is just really actually um, taking the world by, you know, it's just one of these game-changing technologies. Um, so what we can do is we can make measurements to parts of the scene. We can do this so accurately that we can actually then use that to build a three-dimensional reconstruction of the scene um, by imaging or making hundreds of thousands of these measurements per second. Uh, that's a mode that a lot of ground vehicles use, and we use, our, we use that same mode on aircraft also. And what that does is without actually having to get any parallax or having to take multiple images over time, we can do some reconstructions. Now, there's positives and negatives for both sides, you know, imagery versus um, LIDAR. Imagery is all exposed um, all instantaneously. So in a flash, you get, um, I, I didn't mean flash, I, mean, I meant in a very... Uh, short period of time, the entire image can be exposed, just like a photograph, and you can you get all that data all at once. You don't have to worry about registering it that well. The problem with LIDAR is, of course, there's some solid-state LIDAR coming, which would do the same thing. But generally, LIDAR is done by scanning. So you have a beam that, that uh, makes a measurement several hundred thousand times a second, but you have to move the beam to make measurements. And the problem with that is that this movement happens slowly enough that the uh, vehicle is obviously moving. So every data 
um, every range measurement is taken from a slightly different place. And this means that you have to register that data uh, through some other means, some other technology. You have to be able to put this uh, reconstruction together. So um, pluses and minuses on both sides. And so a lot of the vehicles that you see today um, have some combination of camera and LIDAR. Now, there's a third, in, a third thing that we see, which is radar. And radar technology is uh, very interesting. It's sort of like in the, in the middle here. Um, it's very, very useful because it's relatively long wavelength and is able to see through um, even rain or dust or fog in, in many cases, not the very, very thickest of obscurance, uh, especially heavy rain, but radar is able to provide measurements to especially metal objects. So for example, if you're in a car and you're, you wanna know the distance to the car ahead of you, you, the best way to probably do it today is radar. And in fact, that's the automatic cruise control that's available in, in cars today, it uses radar to measure that distance because you know it works in so many different environmental conditions in which LIDAR and um, the, the camera technologies don't work, wouldn't work. Right, and I presume that a lot of this technology is, of course, now being used uh, in your current company, Near-Earth Near Autonomy. So switching gears to your, your company, how and when did you uh, found the company? And um, why did you decide to start it? So we started it in 2012. Uh, there was a very interesting opportunity that was presented um, that we saw as pivotal, which was that um, the Defense Department in the United States had a project to be to to create a fully autonomous helicopter. You know, serious uh, full-scale helicopter, ten-meter uh, rotor diameter. These aircraft, the specific aircraft that we ended up using, is called a UH-1, or also known as Huey. So these are large transport helicopters to show that um, aircraft could be used for transporting materials in austere environments. Essentially, um, the use of trucks, convoys, uh, exposes people to all kinds of hazards on the roads. The idea is, uh, you know, if you had an autonomous aircraft like that, then you'd be able to fly over these hazards rather than being exposed to these, these this kind of danger on the road. So. You know, as is the case in many high technology uh, or sort of cutting edge technologies, the early adopters are come from the Defense Department. Um, the need comes from the from the military side. And so uh, we had been doing this kind of work with ground vehicles for many years. And of course, you know, the, the catalyst for that had been also um, to make it go from sort of an interesting technology to something that could be used commonplace was uh, uh, the U.S. defense um, had put out a challenge, DARPA challenge, for having uh, vehicles run around in desert. Uh, and this is, I'm going to this, this was 2005. And then in 2007, there was a challenge to have these vehicles operational in a kind of an urban-like environment, which then led to all kinds of companies getting involved in and um, um the evolution of the technology for passenger cars to making passenger cars autonomous. So uh, there was a um, 
similar kind of opportunity, very nascent, uh, very little work had been done in this area to automate um, helicopters. And so as it turns out, uh, my group at Carnegie Mellon was one of the few groups that had been working in this area. It turned out that the opportunity was big enough that it made sense to start a company to actually address this because there were some terms that this rather large project we're going to need that weren't going to fit very easily at at, uh, at the university. So we took a chance. We started a company uh, with four people and uh, happened to hit the timing right in the sense that this whole area has become very hot uh, ever since then. So there's been a, just a large number of applications um, that have been presented and we were there to be able to take some of the uh, technology and there's a large number of people who are in this ecosystem who have been working on ground vehicles and, and put them to work on, on air vehicles. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely perfect timing as there's a, a lot of buzz around autonomous flights and EV tolls, as you mentioned before at the moment. So because you, you mentioned a helicopter earlier, um, I saw that you recently partnered with uh, Cayman Aerospace and uh, Navair to uh, develop an intelligent autonomy system for their KMAX helicopter, which is um, a helicopter that can kind of lift more than its own empty weight. So uh, what is the goal of that project and uh, what is it that you hope to achieve? Yeah, so um, when we finished our project from 2012 uh, to 2017, what we had shown was sort of like it was possible to have aircraft, large aircraft, um, fly autonomously, okay, uh, aware of the environment, uh, fly in sort of militarily relevant um, environments. Now, it turns out that many of these capabilities are necessary for just about any um, uh, helicopter that would fly autonomously, even in the civilian case. The military case is a little bit more uh, difficult because it requires, you know, operation in uh, just the worst kind of settings and worst environmental settings of the flight envelope or the flight pads are, are fast and you, you need to be able to land quickly without actually having a map, without being able to hover or overfly. Uh, so some of these things are not, uh, uh, some of these things are more, let's say, constraining than a uh, commercial use cases. But nevertheless, uh, this was, th th the same set of technologies are relevant to a, just a very broad range of, uh, of aircraft. So when we did this, when we finished this project in 2017, what we say we've done is we've sort of shown the art of the possible, what is possible here. And then there's a huge next step here, which is like, how do you do this practically? Because uh, we had built a system, you know, starting with some ideas we had in 2012 and kept on iterating on it. And to meet those goals, uh, we ended up with a fairly complex system. This is very typical, right? Um, you don't quite know what's hard until you've actually done the done the work. So after five years, we were quite ready to really solve the problem in a more practical way. So it's taken a few years, and the idea here is in this new project, we're trying to take some of those ideas we developed in that five-year-long project that led to the autonomous Huey um, into a much more practical system that is more utilitarian and is driven. The concept of operations, so the use cases are driven by um, in this particular case, 
the first group of people who stood up for it, which are the uh, logisticians, the people who actually think about how to move a large amount of material from one place to another. The objective here is to take all the lessons learned from the work we did prior and apply it to a real concept of operations, not like the very worst of what we might have to do in a very broad range of uh, uh, circumstances. So we're looking with the KMAX, it's got a very practical um, concept or uh, it's got a very practical way of being used in um, in all kinds of operations, actually not just a military vehicle. It's mostly used for uh, in construction and in logging, uh, all kinds of things where it, they, they may not be roads and you have to lift heavy loads and move them to from one place to another. And it it operates with what we call a sling load, where there's a, um, a cable and at the end of the cable, there's a load. It could be uh, a very large tree out of a forest or it could be um, a pylon for a highway um, and uh, be able to carry these supplies from one place to, to another. So what we're doing is these two things, right? Taking all the lessons learned, uh, putting it into a, a much more compact, reliable system um, that can be attached to a full-scale helicopter and then um, show its utility in a, uh, in a practical use case. Okay, great. So we've we've talked a lot about technology uh, and you know how we actually uh, can actually you know manufacture, produce, and implement all of these autonomous vehicles. But of course, you know economics, culture, and regulations they also kind of you know play a, a key role in this kind of vision of autonomous vehicles, especially in the airspace sector where there are some you know very, very strict and stringent uh, regulations. So. How do you actually see kind of the broader culture interacting with autonomy? Do you think it's just a matter of that at some point the economics will make it such that autonomous travel is just way cheaper than any piloted travel and then it will just be a no-brainer? Or do you think there will be, apart from, of course, the regulatory hurdles, that there will be some cultural hurdles towards the adoption? This is a question that I spent a lot of time thinking about recently because, you know, if you think about adoption and not just one technology after the other, uh, you have to think about the whole topic very broadly such that you can see how, um, you know, it, you know the, the culture, the regulations, uh, the reliability, all of these are as important as any, anything else we do. So broadly, um, I think that when you have a new technology, the first thing that you have to do is you have to show that it's feasible, right? Uh, in any kind of case. And I think we've done that. As a community, we've done that. This, this technology, flying autonomous aircraft, is feasible. Now, there, there are three very important things that our industry or community has to do. First, we have to show it's capable, broadly capable, right? It, it's a capability is not just one thing, right? Or one kind of operation, it, it should be capable of doing an actual mission, right? Uh, a useful mission. Uh, then it has to be reliable. And part of the challenge of uh, the reliability side is that there are no good standards at this point. There is not a good understanding of how to think about an autonomous aircraft right now. Should we think about these kinds of aircraft the way we think about general aviation or we think about commercial aviation, uh, you know, which is 
got uh, very stringent kinds of certification rules for avionics. And how do we even think about autonomy? Um, uh, you know, should we think about certifying autonomy or validating it or somehow or the other qualifying it? This is a conversation that's happening right now. So it's not just a matter of making our systems reliable enough to meet some standards. It's really a question of actually positing what standards should be used. So it's a, it's a challenging but uh, conversation, but actually I think it's a great one to have because it's not just meeting somebody else's standards. I think it's actually having a conversation with the regulators um, that do this. So I, I think that reliability is a very complex kind of uh, thing. So we have capability, we have reliability. And the third thing is affordability, right? So people can actually use these things in a commonplace sense. If they're so expensive that very few people can do it, then they won't become commonplace. So, you know, as an engineer, you have this kind of um, heuristic um, we speak about often, we say faster, cheaper, better, pick two, right? Uh, and in this particular case, I think we have this dilemma of like, you know, uh, capable, reliable, and affordable, we need all three. It's a paradox, right? And, and I think this is a, uh, a, a great challenge, a great, uh, you could think of this as a paradox and with no answer here and throw up your hands, uh, or you can take this as a good fight a challenge worth worth waking up every day to solve. Um, so our take about this is that if you focus on uh, uh, something that needs all three of these, then it doesn't work till it all works. And that's a problem. That's a bootstrapping problem. How do you break out of this? And one way to do this that we are seeking is look for applications where at least one of these things is not the the predominant or not so important okay so if we could relax the rules we could find a not rules sorry uh if we could relax the requirements for um either uh, capability or reliability or affordability uh, then we have a chance of actually showing what's possible there to strike the imagination of people who might want to then think about how they want to do this um, in the long term. So I think that's how we break this logjam. Otherwise, we sort of like, uh, you know, chase our own tails here and uh, don't get very far um, making incremental progress. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this this bootstrapping paradox is definitely, I think, uh, yeah, a key issue. But then, of course, to some extent, you know, uh, we influence the tools that we engineer, but then at some point, the tools that we've built then also influence us. So maybe at some point when we do, as you say, have uh, some systems in place that do reliably, you know, prove the capability and and it's also cheap, that uh, that will influence us to some extent to be willing to uh, take maybe an, a little bit of extra risk and, and try out one of these systems. Um, before we close, I just have one kind of final question for you, which is uh, kind of, I want you to look into into a crystal ball and just kind of try to predict the future a little bit. And it's all kind of inspired by uh, Peter Thiel's. Uh, so he was kind of like the co-founder of PayPal and one of the first investors in Facebook. So he has this famous quip where, um, yeah. you know, in the 1970s and 80s, futurists promised us flying cars, but instead we got 140 characters in Twitter. Um, so how do you see the future of autonomous flying uh, of autonomous flying and you know when will we have flying cars yes this is a 
good question. And if you have somebody who could look in their crystal ball and give a credible answer, I'd certainly like to meet this person. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so one thing that I would like to say here in understanding this kind of technology is that we've had this phenomenal success with, um, with the internet and with uh, computing technologies. And, you know, things that we could not even imagine just in a few years became possible. And, you know, you can do technological development all over the world with very little and uh, come together, make these tremendous kinds of gains. All sorts of things are new ways of operating are possible just because we can do communications and we can do computing um, much, much uh, orders of magnitude better than we were able to do before. Well, the confusion comes when we think about aerospace and the automotive world in the same kind of, you know, pace that we've been seeing this happen on the on the computing side. And I think this is the danger here is that, uh, you know, we believe that all progress in technology should happen at the speed of the Internet. Um, when, in fact, uh, you know, uh, the laws that govern these Newton's laws of, of you know, certain laws are, are different here for the the way that the internet technology has proceeded versus how aerospace technology needs to proceed. You know, we're we're driven by just completely different ways of thinking, friction and uh, thermo thermodynamics. Uh, you know, gravity. These kinds of things make life a whole lot more difficult than it is to develop pure software systems. Pure software systems, complex systems, are can become hugely complex, okay, um, and I'm not mitigating that, but their life cycle of development is quite different from what we have seen um, in this, um, uh, in, in our world. And I think that what this means is that uh, it's going to take some time to happen. I, I think that post-pandemic, we're going to have to really think through how we are going to use transportation, okay? Um, certain things are going to become a whole lot more necessary. So for example, transport of goods, we need it to be more efficient and uh, uh, cheaper, essentially cheaper point-to-point um, uh, -point transport of goods. Do we need people to go point-to-point -point as much as we did in the past? A couple of years ago, I would have said definitely. That, that is the case, you know? We have this hub and spoke system and that is what drives the inefficiency in transport today. But if you can sit, you're, you're in the UK, I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and we're having a reasonable conversation. We could have been having a video chat um, and that might have taken away the need for us to actually uh, fly across the Atlantic and spend days for a few hour meeting, right? So I think that there's gonna be a reassessment in our needs and this need is what's gonna, I think, drive the actual uh, applications that go into into mature use. Does that make sense? I mean, I'm, I'm really talking about, you know, in the end, it's where is the pull coming from, not what is the technology capable of, of itself. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. And of course, you know, pre, pre, uh, prior to the pandemic, of course, there was probably a lot of momentum in the system as well, where, you know, people are used to doing things as, as they have for, for the last couple of years and then an event like this comes along and just breaks things up a little bit and you know 
makes you question your fundamental assumptions of, um, you know, how often should you be traveling? Where should you be traveling? Are there maybe more efficient solutions, as you say, by just jumping on a on a, on a call um, over the Internet? Um, and um, yeah, I, I think there will probably be some kind of rejigging of, of how people see travel. So, um, Sanjeev, thanks a lot for coming on, on the podcast today. It was really enlightening um, to speak to you. As a, as a final kind of question, do you, would you like to point our listeners to any online presence that Near Earth Autonomy or your research group have that they, that they can check out? Um, Near Earth Autonomy has a YouTube channel. You can just search it very easily. And we have all kinds of videos that show what's possible with this technology. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, I think if somebody's looking for ideas there, um, there, there are all kinds of um, uh, use cases that you'll find. I think that's the easiest thing to refer you to. And, of course, on our website, you can read press releases and get an idea of, um, you know, what are the things that we're up to. Great. It was a real pleasure speaking to you today. Thanks again. Thank you for the time. If you'd like to learn more about near-Earth autonomy, then head over to airspaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast, where you will find show notes about everything we discussed in today's episode. And if you enjoy the Airspace Engineering Podcast, then there are a number of ways you can support it. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're tuning in. You can share it on social media with your friends and family, or you can support the podcast directly on Patreon. And with that, thank you very much for listening and talk to you next time.